Well, glad to see everyone fellowshipping so well, and um, hope you had a great Thanksgiving this last week. I want to invite you, if you would, uh, to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, you can certainly follow along in the bulletin, but I, I do love do love to see people open their Bibles as well. So if you have your Bible, open up. And if you ever forget a Bible, just thought I'd mention this, if you don't know, we, we always have some Bibles out behind the the sound area if, if you need one, so you can always grab one there as well. This morning we're going to cover 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. Let me read them, and we'll pray and jump in. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered so when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil let's pray father this morning as we gather together and gather toward you <clears throat> god we ask you to speak through your word I pray your Holy Spirit would come in great power. I thank you that we are no longer slaves of fear, but we are your children. And as your children, we thank you that you love to feed us. And even as Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, we want to hear what you have to say today from this text. So would you come Open up our hearts. Come speak clearly through your word, by your spirit. Use these stammering lips to whatever degree you're able to, God, to communicate your truth and be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I have an Uncle David uh, who lived with, uh, my, with, with us growing up for about a, probably about six months. He was going through some hard times. And so he lived with, uh, with my family just for a short period of time. And he was a, he was a fun guy to have around. Uh, one time he decided he wanted to bake dinner, make dinner for the family. And so my dad was at work. Us kids were all at school. <clears throat> and we came home that evening from school and activities. My dad came home from work. And he decided he wanted to make breaded fish. Sounds good, doesn't it? I love bread of fish. Uh, 
So we come in, the house smells like food. You know, there's some sides with it as well. Smelled okay. I mean, it smelled just, you know, smelled normal. We gathered around the table to eat, and all of us got a piece of fish on our plate and some of the sides, potatoes, or whatever else was there. And everyone took a bite of the fish, and immediately we realized something had gone horribly wrong. My Uncle David had used powdered sugar instead of flour to bread the fish. And it tasted horrible. Needless to say, we were done with dinner, at least that dinner, and it left a pretty bad taste in our mouth. Church without Jesus at the center is kind of like that. Um, It leaves you wanting not more but less and usually leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It's It's a gigantic letdown. Whenever we try to do church without Christ at the very center, at the center of our worship, at the center of our fellowship, at the center of the preaching, at the center of everything, when Christ isn't there, it's a letdown. It's lousy. We don't want any more of it. In fact, do I have to come back next week? Or do I have to, you know, we just, we're done with that. We don't want that. Church without Jesus at the center may have similarities But it winds up being very different and leaves people wanting less, not more. Leaves people with a bad taste in their mouth. Instead of freedom, there is pressure to perform. Instead of grace, there's self-effort. Instead of spirit empowerment, there is empowerment of the flesh. However, with with church with Jesus at the center is refreshing life-giving. There's lots of celebration. There's lots of celebration when Jesus is at the center because he's the centerpiece. He's on center stage. We're looking to him. We're celebrating who he is and what he has done. So there's lots of celebration. And when church has Jesus at the center, seekers want in on it. It looks like, I want that. I want something. There's something going on there that I don't have, and I, I want that. When Jesus is at the center of church, our witness will be marked by joy and courage. And the Holy Spirit is all in it. He's empowering all of it. I don't know about you, but I want to be a church with Jesus at the center. I think that you do too. I think that's why you're here. And that's why you show up every week is because you want to celebrate Jesus. You don't want to celebrate yourself. You don't want to celebrate just the act of getting together for the sake of getting together, but you want to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's, let's go for it this morning. What does this text say to us about Christ being at the center of a gathered people called the church? The first word that Peter speaks in this passage in verse 8 as he says, finally, all of you, the first words, finally, all of you. The word finally makes us look back at what Peter has been talking about. The last three messages in First Peter, we see that Peter addresses citizens living underneath a government, right, to submit to a governing, governing authorities. We see that Peter addresses servants living under masters, serving their masters, We see that Peter addresses wives 
submitting to their husbands and husbands living in an understanding way toward their wives. And here he says, finally, as as if to say, to to sum up this section of what I have to say, this, this bit of instruction, finally, and he says, all of you, as if to take a step back and say, now I'm going to address everyone here. I think Peter assumes that as his letter is being passed around, this letter, 1 first, first Peter, that gathered churches are coming together and perhaps the leaders are taking this letter and reading it to the congregation. So he says, finally, all of you, all different kinds of people, all different groups of people, certainly Christians, believers in Jesus, but young and old, men and women, those in positions of authority and those under authority, those who are masters and those who are slaves, those who are men and those who are women, those who are black, white, Hispanic, except all, all of you, finally, all of you. And what Peter unpacks for us from verses 8 to 17 is really what church looks like with Jesus at the center. He goes on to tell us that life is good in a church when Jesus is at the center of things. After that, he tells us that a church with Jesus at the center will at times be opposed. It will suffer pushback. And finally, he tells us that a church with Jesus at the center will be a fearless witness for their Lord. So let's take a look at these one at a time. First, verses 8 and 9 tell us what a church with Jesus at the center looks like. And I would sum it up this way. A church with Christ at the very center of all that they do. They celebrate Jesus. They celebrate who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, how he's changing people. They worship him. They lift up his name. This is a church full of people who have a zeal for good. A zeal for doing good. Not just good thoughts, but a zeal for doing good. Look at verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Just stop right there for a moment. When Jesus is at the center of church, our hearts are enlarged toward others. In particular, brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at these words. Look at these phrases. Have have unity of mind. I don't think that means we have complete agreement on everything, but we have a singular goal as a people. He goes on to say, have sympathy. Sympathy is not a weak quality. Sympathy is a wonderful quality. When I, as I thought about this, I was like, oh Lord, increase my sympathy for others. Sympathy is the ability to feel the joys and the pains that others experience. is to have their joys, their sorrows affect us. Does anybody else here sometimes just feel numb to the difficulties others around us are experiencing? Peter says, have sympathy. When Jesus is at the center, we will and we do. Have brotherly love. This is the, the, the Greek word phileo. Philadelphia, the city out in in Pennsylvania, is called the city of brotherly love. It comes from this word. Brotherly love is like this idea of others are part of the family. 
Others are part of the family. Brothers and sisters in Christ are truly that. They are part of our family. Have this. Have brotherly love. A tender heart, a softness toward others. A tenderness toward others, especially in their challenges and difficulties. And have a humble mind. In other words, consider others more important than yourself. I don't know about you, but when I'm at the center, and I am sometimes, of my world, I don't have unity of mind. I have my way. I want things my way. I don't have a singular goal with others. I'm not sure I I don't have much sympathy for others. I don't feel their pains and their sorrows and their joys. I sometimes don't have brotherly love for others. I don't have a tender heart or a humble mind. But when Christ is at the center, we will. This is what church looks like. We are people that have these qualities. Verse 9 goes on to say, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. When Christ is at the center, when we are insulted, you know what we do? We bless. We bless. And it's hard to know whether Peter's switching gears and saying, now I'm talking about you, how you relate with outsiders. I don't know that he necessarily is. Sometimes we're insulted by family members, aren't we? Brothers in Christ. When insulted, we bless. When others do evil to us, we overcome evil with good. Verse, the second part of verse 9 is key. Where it says, for to this you were called. Or on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. When you are smacked with the reality of the enormous blessing you have received in Christ you will realize that you have been blessed by Christ in order to be a blessing to others. When it says, to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing, this word called, I think, refers to the effectual calling of the Spirit of God. When we were dead in our sins, and the gospel came to us, and the Holy Spirit overcame our hardness, and called us to Christ, and we believed. You were called to this, to be blessed in Jesus. It's similar to how Peter uses this word in 1 Peter 2.9 when he says that God called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's amazing to think about how when you and I lived to revile Christ... He blessed us. When all we did was heap insult upon him, all we were doing was evil against him. With every breath, he overcame the evil of our hearts with all of his good. And Titus 2.14 says he did this so that we would be zealous for good works. We would have a zeal to do good. When Jesus is at the center, brothers and sisters, when he's at the center, 
when Christ and what he's done is at the very center of all that we are about, we have an increasing zeal for good. We want to do good to our brothers and sisters, and we want to do good to everyone. But there's more. Life is good in a church with Jesus at the center. If I could put it this way, when Jesus is at the center of a, the culture of a church, this is the good life. This is the good life. This is as good as it gets. When we were gathered this morning and we were singing these songs, did anyone else feel like there is no place I would rather be right now than here? Some of you give me a blank stare. Okay, that's okay. I'm trusting by the end of this morning, you'll be like, I'm in, I'm in. Okay, I'm in. There's something about gathering together around Christ in the unity of the Spirit. It is good. Life is good when we do that. Verses 10 through 12 say this, quoting, Peter's actually quoting Psalm 34. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now your ears should perk up and say, I do. Who doesn't? Whoever desires to love life and see good days. If you are here today and you're like, life doesn't seem that good. I'm not loving life right now. I'm not seeing very many good days. Then listen up. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Everyone has this yearning, this desire to love life and see good days. Everyone has a yearning for happiness and for joy. Everyone has a yearning for the good life. God has put that in us. One of the most common parting statements we say to someone as they're walking out the door is what? Have a good day. Why do we say that? I say that all the time. Why do we say that? Well, I think it's because we want to have a good day and we assume that others do as well. Have a good day. Just comes out of our mouth. We all want this good life and yet it seems to escape so many. If you were asked or if, if someone was asked what the good life is, most might give some kind of rendition of the American dream. Or they might restate the words of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, love or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what the good life is. But unfortunately, those who outwardly seem to, have, seem to be experiencing the good life are oftentimes the most empty of it. I stumbled across just a, a really short bi- biographical sketch of a guy named Ernest Hemingway. Probably lots of you have heard that name before. Famous novelist. I mean, really a brilliant author. He pursued life with a vigor, with a passion. He had little regard for God, little regard for his word, probably, probably, probably zero regard for God and his word. But he pursued life passionately. He pursued the good life with money. He had money. He had lots of women. He traveled. He had adventure. He had success. He sold millions of books. He seemed to live life to the fullest. He 
new life, at least outwardly. He knew liberty. He could do whatever he wanted with whomever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And he pursued happiness. But did he see good days? Did he love life? No. His life ended when he put a gun to his head and blew his brains out. Frank Sinatra, old blue eyes, right? We love his music, at least in our home. Sabrina had played some Christmas music this time of year. Frank Sinatra brings so much joy to so many people. Did for years, even after he's dead now. But he struggled most of his adult life with despair and loneliness and sorrow. Michael Jackson, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Not, not just, not just, a, not, he just didn't just have lots of money. He had gobs of money, piles of money. He had success. He was the most famous artist for decades. He was called the king of pop. King of dance, too. Maybe he had, I don't know, king of lots of stuff. After he died, one author of an article called him king of pain because of all the psychotropic drugs he took to cope with life. Those that seem to have things going on on the outside often are the most empty people. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, when he says, God must look down at his creatures and say, their, their desires are not too strong, they're too weak. They settle for I'm going to fill some things in. Sex and money and drugs and power when eternal joy is offered to them. You and I should not fear the fear either failure or missing out on the American dream as we or others may imagine it. What we should fear most is missing the good life, the life that really matters. Peter tells us what the good life is. Verses 10 and 11, continuing on, Peter quotes Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, we all want that, right? Okay, listen up. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him watch his mouth. Let no evil thing come out of his mouth. Let no lies come from his lips. Turn away from evil and put your hands to doing good. And seek after peace with all of your heart and pursue it. Now, why is this the good life? Is this just an end in itself? This doesn't sound like Jesus at the center. This sounds like my effort at the center. Hey, you stop doing this. You start doing this. No, verse 12 shows us why this is the good life. Verse 12 shows us. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The good life is this. In, this. in this life, in this world, 
the good life is God's smile upon you. The pleasure of God upon you. His eyes upon the righteous. His ears open to their prayer. But his face is turned against those who do evil. This is the good life because it is to live under the smile and blessing of God. God's eyes are on the righteous. His face is toward the righteous. His face is against the unrighteous, those who do evil. To have God's face, his eyes and his ears turned to us is the greatest thing we could experience in this life. It is the blessing of God's manifest favor in Christ. Now, the only way that we are righteous before God in a saving way is through Christ alone, right? Through Jesus alone, we are clothed with his righteousness. We're clothed with robes of righteousness by Christ's finished work alone. So we put him at the center. We look to Jesus. And yet, as believers in Christ... We experience varying degrees of God's pleasure and joy manifestly in our lives as we walk in the new life he gives us in Jesus. And I think that's what Peter has in mind here. I don't think he just has in mind those who are declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus. Because he contrasts God's eyes are are toward and his ears are open to the righteous, but his face is against those who do evil. So the issue is doing righteousness, living righteously versus doing evil. This, uh, this idea reminded me of um, Numbers chapter 6. This is Moses is receiving instruction from God that he is then to give to Aaron. And this is a blessing that Aaron is to speak over the people of Israel. It's, it's oftentimes a benediction uh, that's used at the end of a church, sir, at the end of a service, or at the end of a wedding, or something. And it says this Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord, listen to this, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance of his face upon you. And give you peace. The Lord lift up his countenance and give, you, and, and, and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel. And I will bless them. This is, this is to live under the manifest blessing and favor of almighty God. We may not have the favor of men. But if we can live under God's favor and blessing and experience that, his smile, his affirmation, his love poured out upon us in an experienced way. I don't know about you, but that's that's the good life. The good life is the manifest presence of the risen Christ among us as a people. But it's not without opposition. A church with Jesus at the center, this is good. This is as good as it gets here on planet Earth. It is as good as it gets. But a church with Jesus at the center will at times be opposed. 
verses 13 and 14, says, Now who is there to harm you if you have zeal for what is good or you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter actually says, when you experience opposition, you will be blessed. This is a theme that we see throughout the book of 1 Peter. In chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Peter says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while, su- uh, while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Chapter 4, verse 14 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, anyone suffers as a follower of Jesus, as a believer in Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. Of course, I... I can't imagine the words of Jesus ever left Peter's ears. Jesus says nearly the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to his disciples up on a mountain, mountainside, and he says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, because of all the good they're doing, they are being opposed. Because they are not reviling, but they are blessing in return, they're being opposed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Luke, in his version of this, these words of Jesus, says, adds the words, leap for joy in that day. For your reward is great in heaven. It begs the question, <clears throat> why? Why would anybody ever be opposed to someone who has such a passion for good. You might think, no, I mean, why would anyone push back against someone who is doing good, who has has a zeal for what is good? That's what Peter says here. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? You are burning to do good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Why would anyone be opposed to our zeal for good? Jesus tells us in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. And why? Because their deeds are evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So our zeal for good, when Christ is at the center and we are burning over, we are burning up with zeal for good, we are white hot to do good. And there's pushback. It's because our good, we're expressing and showing forth the light of Christ, which has been given to us. He is the light of the world. And then he says to us, you are the light of the world and people love their sin and they love their darkness and they don't want it. Our good deeds as people in the light and of the light expose the darkness of those who hate the light. So, we shouldn't be surprised if at times, now Peter doesn't, I mean, Peter says, who is there to harm you? So I don't think we assume that anyone who's living for Jesus, anyone who you try to share Christ with is going to want to punch you in the face or something. But there will be times when there's opposition and it shouldn't surprise us. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So a church with Jesus at the center will at times be opposed. There will be at times a suffering for righteousness sake. There will be a suffering because of our zeal for good. And in fact, Paul, like I just read in 2 Timothy 3, He says, expect it. It will happen. A church with Jesus at the center, however, will be a fearless witness for Jesus in the face of opposition. Verses 14 to 16. The last part of verse 14 says, have no fear of them. Fear of who? Well, the people who may want to harm you for righteousness sake the people who may want to harm you because of your commitment to Jesus and your zeal for what is good. Have no fear of them and do not be troubled. I don't know about you, but I find the idea of someone wanting, someone wanting to harm another person because of their commitment to Jesus and that possibly being me someday being somewhat unsettling. Right? So Peter tells us the antidote for fear. Don't fear them. Do not be troubled. But, verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with patience and gentleness, or gentleness and respect. The answer to fear is regarding Christ as holy, right? Setting setting him apart as holy in our hearts is is a stronger allegiance to Christ, is a deeper, more profound allegiance to Jesus. The context of verse 15, which is oftentimes quoted um, to as uh, as the key verse to talk about when we talk about the the school of apologetics, right? We want to make Christ known. We want to give an an answer to those who hope us, who who ask us about the hope that we have inside of us. 
But it's interesting, the context of verse 15 is persecution. The context is in when there's pushback. Persecution comes, and instead of returning reviling, you bless. Instead of being overcome by evil, you overcome evil with good. You live by a completely different set of values. You are motivated by a completely different set of hopes and aspirations. You have set your hope on the living Christ. And not, being, not, by, not on being accepted by everyone else. Haven't you? So, we should long to so treasure Jesus Christ in our hearts. Not just with our, not just give him lip service. We should so want to treasure Jesus in our hearts that people would say to us, You are strange. Tell me about this hope you have. The world is falling apart. Your life is falling apart. But you are not falling apart. What is it? We should want to treasure Jesus like this so that people ask us, tell me about this hope that you have. So that's the key. Jesus at the center. Christ at the center in your hearts. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. This hope that you have inside of you, this hope that has come to you through Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, if you, Peter commands us, and here's what I want to, I just want to wrap up today. Peter commands us in your hearts. I want you to hear this from God in your hearts. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's a command. Peter's not giving a suggestion. He is telling us what to do. To honor Christ as holy in our hearts is not a mere tip of the hat to Jesus. It's not a wink of the eye. It's not a fist bump. It's not a high five. It's not a Jesus is my homeboy shirt. Listen, I love this song that we sang earlier. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. But it's not like a buddy you might walk past in the office and give a fist bump to or shake the hand. Peter assumes that you and I can do this because he says, do this, Christian. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's something that goes to the core of who you and I are as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of him. So, what does this mean? Well, three things, at least. Three things I'm going to cover today. Honor Christ as holy. Honor him, honor Jesus as holy. Believe in Jesus as the Christ and obey Jesus 
as Lord. First, honor him as holy. The NIV translates this verse or this, this, these words, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. I actually really like how the New American Standard Bible translates it. I memorized it years ago in NASB. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This word sanctify is actually the word Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer when he says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. This means to regard Jesus as holy. It's to regard Jesus as utterly unique, one of a kind. To put Christ in a category all by himself, in your heart, not just in your brain. So Jesus is a tender, compassionate friend, but he is no mere friend. He is holy. He is almighty God who is our friend. John Piper says to honor Christ as holy is to give Christ the highest place, the greatest value, the supreme treasure, the greatest admiration, the one you esteem and honor and love the most of all persons and things in the entire world. So, in your heart, listen, I don't want you to think, you know, I'll kind of think about this a little bit more later. I want you to think about it later, but right now, in your heart, engage with God here. In your heart, Honor Jesus Christ as holy. Put other things down that have been regarded with the admiration and the praise and the exaltation that Christ alone is worthy of. Second, we not only honor him as holy, we believe in him as the Christ. In your hearts, honor Christ As holy. Every time Peter called Jesus Christ, I've I got to believe he hearkens back to that encounter with Jesus, that time Jesus was talking to his disciples and says, who do the people say I am? Oh, prophet. One of the prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of them. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ means he is our substitute savior. Just in the last chapter, 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our place. He bore our sins. Our Christ-centeredness, if Jesus is going to be at the center, it will have a direct correlation to our cross-centeredness. When the cross is at the center, do you realize that every good thing that comes to you, 
Every good thing that comes to you as a believer in Christ comes to you because of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but every bad thing that happens to you that God then turns for good was purchased by the Lord Jesus. Believe in him as the Christ. And finally, obey him as Lord. He is Lord. Jesus is referred to Lord hundreds of times in the New Testament. The, word, the Greek word Lord is kurios. It had, its Old Testament counterpart is the, word, the Hebrew word Adonai, which means sovereign one. It's a title. It's not a name. It's a title given to God in the Old Testament. It's a title given to Jesus here. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He is the sovereign one. He is the sovereign king. Part of the Great Commission, quite frankly, one that many um, gospel-loving churches perhaps don't emphasize as much, is this. Jesus said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and then this, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Teach obedience. As followers of Jesus, teach obedience. To honor Christ the Lord as holy is to obey him as Lord it is to say, you are Lord, you are master, I am servant. You are king, I am your happy subject. You give commands and I obey. Christmas song that we sing oftentimes Joy to the world. One of the verses says, Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. He rules the world with truth and grace. Let every heart prepare him room. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord is holy. When we do that, see a church that has Christ at the center, you know what it is? You know what it's made up of? It's not a a building that has loud songs singing about Jesus blasting through the speakers. It is full of people, individuals who have Christ at the center. Individuals who, in their hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Let's pray. Father, this morning, right now, God, I ask you to open up our eyes to see Christ the Lord as holy, as one of a kind, as God Almighty, as the Lord, as the sovereign one, as Adonai, as the King over all, and as the Christ who came, lived, 
and took our place on the cross and rose again. Oh, Jesus, we are so desperate of you. We need you. We want you. We want you at the center. We want you at the center of all of our conversations, at the center of our prayers. We want to bank on you for our, in our prayers. We want to lift you up in our worship because when you are lifted up, men and women and children are drawn to you. We want our thoughts of you to be the best thoughts of our day, the, most, the highest thoughts, the most joy-filled and happy thoughts that we have. We want you to be the center of our conversations. We want you to be the center of our celebrations. We want you at the center, Jesus. A people zealous for good works. A people that are, have, a, have a burning zeal to do good. So I ask you, God, Father, to open up our hearts now, each one of us individually, and grant us help from your Spirit that we would deliberately, intentionally, this, this moment in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I pray this in Jesus' name.